So you and I, these earthly shells that we live in, we are but dust. From the dust of the ground we've been created, and to the dust of the ground we will return. And yet, everywhere in between these two things, we do everything we can to get rid of the dust. We wipe down the dust. We sweep out the dirt. We wash. We scrub. We vacuum. We try to do everything we can to get rid of the sight and the smell of dirt. No one ever chooses the smell of dirt. You can go down to the mall and look in the candle stores and you will find exactly 17,491 different varieties of candles, potpourri, and scented sprays, but not one of them is called dirt. Apple spice, very licious. Silver birch, winter garden, Bahama breeze, banana nut bread, 17,491 different varieties, but no one makes one called dirt. Because nobody wants that smell. We're all trying to get away from it, even though that is what we came from and that is what we are eventually headed back to. Dirt. Sometimes we get a little close, too close to the earth for a little too long, you know what I mean? We go out camping for an entire week. You go on your annual eight-day hunting trip. And at the end, it's like we've become one with the stuff, the dirt. It's under our fingernails, it's in the creases of our skin, it's in our hair, it's in the inner folds of our clothes. A week later, we still are finding it in our eyebrows and deep down in between our toes, inside our ears. We find dirt in places and think to ourselves, how could it possibly have gotten in there? Sometimes we spend enough time out there and we're reminded of this unavoidable reality. From the earth we have come and to the earth we will return, even though most everywhere in between we mostly try to avoid the thought. I take the time to mention that this morning because this message today is about what happens when the glory of heaven meets the stuff of earth. And that includes you and me. And in Luke's telling of the Christmas story, I believe that it's very significant that the first time he talks about the glory of heaven encountering earth, that glory falls down on just about the most earthy men that you could possibly encounter. Now, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and even if you're there at home, and I hope you do have it out and open, turn to Luke chapter 2. We started there this last week. We're here this week. In fact, we're here all season long. Luke chapter 2, where in verses 1 through 7, it tells the story of the birth of Jesus told to us in the most normal, down-to-earth way possible. There's this national census. Joseph and his soon-to-be wife, Mary, made their way to Bethlehem. The time came for Mary to give birth. There was no room for them in the town to be spared. So she delivered the child where the animals were kept. And there that first night, the new little family rested together with their new child sleeping in a manger. It's an amazing human interest story. But if you didn't already know the prelude, if you didn't know where the story was going, it would be that. Just an amazing human interest story. Interesting, moving, nothing though yet to strike us as miraculous. But all of that is about to change. Because quickly the scene changes to a hill outside of town, and it says in verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, 
you need to get this picture in your mind. In fact, I want to be more specific. I think you need to get the smell in your nose. These weren't men who were just out in the fields all day long. And at the end of the day, they came in and they scrubbed up good before dinner. At this time of the year, they lived in the fields. These are the guys who've been camping for two weeks without running water, without soap, without outhouses. And then at the end of two weeks, they stay a few weeks more. It wasn't just if you got too close to them. Literally, if you ended up downwind from them, you were going to catch a whiff of something incredibly earthy. The person in my life that I knew who lived closest to the earth was our friend Robert when our family lived in North San Diego. For the five years that I knew Robert and called him my friend, he never spent a night indoors. Partly circumstances, partly lifestyle, but he too lived out in the fields. Robert and I often spent time together during the week, and most Sundays we would pick him up for church and take him with us. It was about a 10-mile drive, and we'd pick him up down along the freeway, and then he would ride with our family to church. Now, I don't want you to think me a lesser person because Robert was my friend. And I genuinely liked him. But the earthy smell that came off of him was simply, sometimes, overwhelming. So, no matter what time of year, we made a family policy that when we rode to church, we kept all the windows in the car open. And we drove as fast as we could to keep air rushing through. It might be 38 degrees and overcast, but windows were down all the way to church because fresh air became a precious thing in our car, because Robert lived out in the fields, too. Now, I'm not taking anything away from what the shepherds did. They were hardworking men. In many ways, they did what no one else wanted to do. But if you were looking for some down-to-earth guys, I mean, ripe and earthy, no one could have fit the bill better. Because what's going to break out next is undeniably supernatural. It's a story about earthly people encountering heavenly glory. And the grand author of this Christmas nativity story could not have cast his characters more perfectly. Now, there were shepherds, verse 8 says, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, let me ask you a really obvious-sounding question. It says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. To the best of your ability, if you were having to explain this to someone who'd never heard it before, they saw the glory. What exactly did they see and experience? I mean, glory is a word that you're familiar with. Uh, We use it all the time. Maybe you had your glory days in high school. If you go for a walk, you may see morning glory growing. When you say the pledge, you look at old glory. You're familiar with the word. Not to mention if you're around church. Uh, Around church, we use the word so much that it can be used all by itself as an exclamation. You don't even have to say anything. You can just say glory. And people accept that around church. What exactly does that mean, that word we use all the time? Actually, it's a fairly straightforward observational question about the Christmas story. Luke writes that the glory of the Lord shone around them. So I've already got the smell of the shepherds in my nose. 
Now I'm trying to get the picture of God's glory in my eyes. What in the world did that look like when the glory of the Lord showed around them? It says in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. They weren't just surprised, they weren't startled, they weren't spooked. It says when the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of God shone down, they were absolutely terrified. By the way, when you read the Bible and you read of people encountering the glory of God, that seems to be an absolutely normal reaction. When the glory of God flashes down from heaven, we as mortal human beings, when we experience the physical response is overwhelming. According to the Bible, people who see the glory, they fall to their face. Their legs buckle and they hit their knees. They go blind. They go into shock. They shout out that they're going to die. Every human being in the moment of seeing the glory instinctively assumes they are toast. Coming into contact with the glory is coming face to face with something so far beyond you that if you can remain conscious through the experience, your heart faints within you. It's like coming face to face with a 900-pound grizzly bear. And you already know what a grizzly bear is. You watch the Discovery Channel. And you understand in your head how big and ferocious they are. But to actually find yourself in the presence of one, even if it was on the other side of the glass, even if they told you the bear was trained and that it was safe, your knees would knock and your heart would pound just the same because this awesome creature is just so far beyond you. It's like standing at the bottom of a ski run and then realizing suddenly that the ground is rumbling beneath your feet and hearing a roar coming down the mountain and looking up and seeing what looks like an entire mountainside of snow that is screaming towards you. And in that moment, realizing you are standing as a frail human being in the presence of a reality that is so absolutely awesome and fearsome and huge and overwhelmingly powerful beyond anything you could ever hope to stand against. And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, The best that you can mutter at that moment is, I'm undone. I am toast. This is curtains for me. It's something like that. The Bible describes numbers of times what the glory of the Lord is like when seen by human eyes. And Luke is assuming when he writes that the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them that we would already have a picture in our mind of what this is like. In case you're wondering, here's my very best, simple definition of the glory of God. The glory of God is the overwhelming, brilliant radiance of the manifest presence of God that is beyond the human capacity to fully experience and still survive. The glory of God is the overwhelming, brilliant radiance of the manifest presence of God that is beyond human capacity to fully experience and still survive. The glory of the Lord radiates from his presence every minute of every day, and heaven is filled with the glory of God. But every so often here on earth, the veil is pulled back. And occasionally God draws near, and in those moments when his presence is manifest, the Bible says that God's glory is accompanied with booming thunder and blinding light. 
And fire rolls out like a river consuming anything that it touches. And mountains quake and the earth trembles. And it booms so loudly that it rattles your rib cage. And more often than any other characteristic, there is this cloud. This radiant, thick, impenetrable cloud. And though, although it is unlike anything else that we've ever encountered, And acknowledging the limitations of what our words are capable of describing. This is what the glory of God is like. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of God shone around them. So the glory of God presents a problem for us, you see. Because we all want to experience it and yet flesh and blood we can't. Moses had a very close relationship with God. They talk so freely. In fact, the Bible says that God talked to Moses like a friend. They talked frequently. And so Moses asked God straight up in Exodus chapter 3, Now show me your glory. God responded, Well, I can't exactly do that, Moses. I mean, I can bring you close. I can let you hear the sound as I pass by. He said, But you cannot see my face. At least you can't see my face and live to tell the story. So he said, go up and meet me on the mountain and I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you as my glory passes by. And then at the very last, I will let you see the very tail end of my glory as it pulls away. But anything more than that, and it will kill you. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me that way and live. And so Moses heard the glory of God, the overwhelming radiance of his manifest presence as he passed by. And Moses felt the glory, and at the very end he got a fleeting glimpse of the glory, but anything more, anything longer for an earthly guy like Moses, whose frame was mere dust, anything more than that, and Moses would have bit the dust. First Timothy chapter six says, God is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see to him. Be honor and might forever. And Luke says that the glory of the Lord shone around these earthy men. And they were terrified. And if it had been you and I, it would have been just the same. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company, the heavenly host, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Angels. Now that's an interesting question in light of what we've been talking about this morning. If God is eternally wrapped in this blinding radiance of glory, And if angels are constantly in the presence of God, why aren't they consumed by the glory? Is it because they're made of tougher Teflon than you and I are? How come angels can constantly be in the presence of God, but they aren't consumed by the glory? 
Now, it does matter that we are mere mortals, the book of Hebrews says, a little lower than the angels. These earthly bodies of flesh and blood, that's part of the equation. But the greatest part of the answer is in what angels do and not in what angels are made of. Notice what the angels are doing in this story. The angel choir comes down to earth, but their singing is not for the benefit of the shepherds. They have not come down to serenade them on the hillside. The focus of their song is praising God and declaring glory to God in the highest heaven. The glory of God has flashed down upon the earth, and these angels are caught up in the crossfire of the glory, but with their voices and their message and the praise, they are reflecting the glory of God back up to where it has come from. This is what angels do. And the greatest part of the reason that angels can exist in the midst of the glory of God is because they have been designed to reflect the glory back. In Isaiah chapter 6, we are given perhaps the most vivid picture ever in the Bible of the Lord God on high, seated on the throne in all of his glory. And it says that the angels are there in the midst of that radiance, hovering all about him on his throne. And the angels in his presence, it says that with their wings, these seraphim, these six-winged angels, they covered their faces. Who covers their faces? Well, from the full glory of God, from that close. It's like shielding your eyes from the sun. And with two wings, they covered their faces. And with two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And with their faces covered, they're constantly calling back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, the angels are constantly reflecting back the radiant majesty to God on high. And in this, in the very presence of God himself, they are not consumed as they reflect the glory back. Now, there's a lesson in that right there for you. The bad news, which we've already discovered, is that the glory of God is a consuming fire, a fire that we can never hope to endure which at first seems like a twisted joke. We have been created by God to know him, to love him, and to enjoy him forever. However, if we ever get too close into his presence, we will be consumed by the overwhelming radiance of his glory. And that would be a twisted joke if you didn't know the good news that comes along with it. You have not been created to be consumed by the glory of God, but much like the angels of heaven, you have been designed and destined to reflect the glory back from whence it came. You have not been created to be consumed by the glory, but to endure it, to enjoy it by reflecting it back from whence it came. Let me try to give you an illustration that I hope will help you grab a hold of this point. When they design spaceships, And by the way, here in the United States, we are in full design mode at this moment for spaceships. The Artemis space program is an ambitious NASA program to return astronauts by the moon to the moon by 2024. And NASA is working with Elon Musk and his company SpaceX and a number of other major firms, all with the goal of a brand new design that will not only get us back to the moon by 2024, but also will pave the way to send astronauts to Mars. Now, when they design spaceships, 
getting up into space is less than half of the problem. And maneuvering around once you're in space, that's actually the easy part. The really hard part is getting back down to earth again without being consumed in the process. You see, the atmospheric friction of anything trying to land on our planet raises the temperature as it does to nearly 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So just to give you an idea of the challenge, it's like trying to fly for 12 minutes through an ocean twice as hot as molten lava. It's really toasty. The atmospheric friction coming in can incinerate almost anything. I mean, giant boulders composed of heavy metals like iron and nickel, they are consumed like they're made out of tissue paper. So puny little human beings, I mean, even if they're dressed up in their fancy little astronaut suits, they have absolutely 0% chance of making it through. Even sitting inside of their big bad spaceship, still 0% chance of making it through. And the spaceships that they design, they're incredibly durable. And don't get me wrong, they can hold up to hundreds of degrees of temperature. You can take that spaceship, you can put it in Death Valley, triple it, and a spaceship will be just fine out there. Unfortunately, trying to get back to Earth is still another 2,700 degrees hotter than that. Trying to get astronauts safely back home literally is a consuming fire. So for the space shuttle, for instance, they developed a heat shield that was composed of 27,000 reflective tiles. They're all about six inches long, six inches wide. They're not very impressive things, really. They're made of silica fibers that come from sand. When completed, they're lighter than styrofoam. If you tried to build your backyard fence out of these tiles, you'd be incredibly disappointed. But these tiles were designed to do one thing and one thing only. They were designed to reflect back the consuming fire to where it came from so that the spaceship, so that those inside of the spaceship can get back home without being destroyed. The consuming heat of reentry is simply too awesome to be endured. If you flew a battleship through it with 18-inch reinforced steel, it would be destroyed by the consuming fire. But covered with the right kind of tiles, basically six-inch strips of styrofoam, basically, it can endure. And why is that? Because they reflect. And to me, that's a perfect picture of our relationship to God and his glory. The glory of God is a consuming fire. And we are not strong enough to survive it. And eventually, we must come face to face with it. And yet, not only have we been designed and destined to survive the glory, but to endure it, to thrive in it, to shine, to reflect back the glory of God again and again and again throughout life and eternity. The word became flesh, the apostle John writes, and he made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. So though in the manger, this son of God is veiled in flesh. What is veiled in flesh? The glory is veiled. It's covered. It's, there's a curtain over it. 
Though in this manger the Son of God is veiled in flesh, make no mistake, the child born this night in the town of Bethlehem, he is the glory of God come into the world. It says in verse 15, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now watch this now, how the story ends. Verse 20 says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they were told. They have seen the glory shown down on the hillside. They have heard the glory sung all about them. They have witnessed the birth of God's glory in Bethlehem. And so these shepherds return back to their dusty fields, their earthy existence. We never hear from them again. They do not become apostles. They do not become authors. They do not write impressive histories. They are nameless witnesses to the glory of Christmas. These shepherds are as earthy as they come, but they have found their destiny. They have already begun that which will become their eternal calling. Returning to those fields of dust and yet reflecting back the glory of God in Jesus back to heaven from whence it came. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He traveled along dusty roads of Galilee. And in his days upon the earth, only rarely did he give a sneak peek at his blinding, unsearchable glory that was contained within his being. But the humble Jesus in the manger has been exalted as the glorious Christ who is seated on high. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Jesus appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. Jesus is God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. And the glory of Jesus is soon to be revealed. This is the blessed hope of the believer, we're told in Titus chapter 2. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this glory of God in Jesus Christ, it is a wild, awesome, dangerous thing. And yet as believers, we look forward to it. We lean forward to it with blessed hope because in fact, the unsearchable light of Jesus, in this we find our eternal destiny. For we have all been called to the glory. We will all share in the glory. We will all be changed into the glory. Philippians chapter 3 says, for he will transform the body of our humble state. That is it, that these bodies that come from dust and return to dust, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. I just wanted to remind you this morning of something that ultimately the glory of God is not survivable. In the end, you cannot hold it. In the end, you cannot possess it. The glory of God will either undo you or the glory of God will shine back from you. Ultimately, those are the only two options. 
I'm reminded of the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, one of the early, perfectly clear promises of the resurrection to come. Looking ahead, Jesus spoke of the same thing in John chapter 5, but the prophet Daniel in chapter 12 said, many of those on that day who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Many of those who sleep in the dust will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. For those who are in relationship with God, this is their eternal destiny. Though they are composed of dust and though he finds them sleeping in the dust, they will not only awake and arise, but they will be transformed to eternally shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Where does that brightness come from? It is merely a reflection from where the glory came. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But having found Jesus, the shepherds returned again to their fields, glorifying and reflecting back Praise to God for all that they have seen. All I was trying to remind you of today is that you have been designed from the very beginning for the purpose of reflecting the glory of God back to him again. That is your design purpose. And Jesus is the glory of God come to earth. When you are reflecting him back, In your song and in your words and in your life, you are fulfilling your life eternal destiny to reflect the glory back from whence it came. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, that he is the magnificent representation of your glory. And Lord, we confess and repent for the times that we take your glory flippantly. And we, we squander your grace as if this is something that we can flippantly dance around in. Lord, we know that in the end, we will either be destroyed by your glory or we will reflect it back. As those whose heart is set on you, I pray that even now we would be living in our eternal state to sing back and to reflect back and to live back the unthinkable radiance of the glory and the righteousness and the majesty of who you are. I pray even in this season, I I pray even in this dark time, there would be a brightness that is reflecting back out of our lives and it is the brightness of the radiance of the reflection of the glory of God on high in Christ Jesus. And so we say glory to God in the highest.